I'm Chad Main, the founder of legal services company Percipient, and this is Technically Legal, a podcast about legal tech, legal innovation, and the impact of technology on the legal industry. In today's episode, we talk to the founder and CEO of cybersecurity company Field Effect, Matthew Holland. He tells us why law firms and legal departments are prime targets for hacking, and he offers some cybersecurity tips that law firms and businesses of all sizes can use to help secure their data and make it harder for the bad guys to get in. In today's episode, I have a great conversation with Matthew Holland. He's an entrepreneur that started a couple businesses in the cybersecurity world. He is currently the CEO of Field Effect Software, which is a cybersecurity company that provides tools and managed services to companies to protect against cyber attacks. Field Effect's stated vision is to strengthen the IT security operations of businesses of all sizes and make it easier for CTOs, chief technology officers, CIOs, chief information officers, IT managers, and IT staff to develop cybersecurity expertise. But Field Effect's Matthew's second company. In 2007, he founded his first startup, Winchpin Labs. That was a company that offered ethical, privatized intelligence to governments and companies. So, how did Matt get into the cybersecurity business? Well, he started his career as a spy. Matt's Canadian, and in 2000, right out of university with a computer science degree in hand, he landed an internship with Canada's CSE, or Communications Security Establishment. Canada's CSE is similar to the NSA in the United States. Matt's internship with CSE lasted a few months, and then right after that, he was hired on as an official employee. Within the CSE, he worked for the Tailored Access Operations Group, or the TAO. That's the group that actually gathers the intelligence that data analysts in the CSE analyze. He was only on the job a few months before 9-11, and that's when everything changed for national security across the world. I remember just working away one day, and all of a sudden, a senior manager running into the room and, you know, basically indicating that something crazy was going down, and then a bunch of us piled into the room uh, and into a side room with a TV and watched, you know, basically the first plane had hit at that point. And we were watching live as the second plane hit and just the, the somber tone in the room and the quick realization that everything was about to change was, was a really surreal start to a career. And just the maturation of the organization uh, after that point was just incredible. So you had been there a year, so you, you saw what it was pre 9-11. So did, I assume it, well, it did, it, it changed, you know, it, it yeah, really changed yeah, what you guys were doing, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the, the biggest change, I mean, uh, on the technical side, I can't get into that right. too much, but I think in the, on the, on the legal side, I think that was where the most change occurred because the, the mission of the organization of, of CSE is, you know, foreign signals intelligence and Canada is typically a pretty cautious country or risk averse country in regards to, to this area. And, uh, actually seeing how that changed and how much the organization and the country had to change its role uh, within the Five Eyes to be a much more uh, prominent contributing member towards um, you know finding out what on earth happened on 9-11. And I guess the rest is history at that point. And you said Five Eyes. Explain what that is. Uh, so the Five Eyes organization is a group of five countries, uh, the US, Canada, UK, Australia, and New Zealand that have a partnership uh, that was formed just after, I believe, World War II. They have a, an intelligence sharing uh, partnership to basically work as a, as a single group. What were you doing at CSE? What, what is the CSE, CSE doing? What's a day in the life? I know you can't talk about a lot of it, but to the extent you can, what's going on there? Yeah, so I, I, the, the analogy I like to give is it's basically the Canadian version of the NSA because you know, everybody's heard of the NSA. It's, it's a very large uh, organization. CSE, same mission, just on a, on a smaller scale. So um, it's kind of hard to <laughs> go into specific right. details about, but I mean, the, the, the mission is foreign signals intelligence. So you're there for how many years? About seven years. And then 
you make the jump. You launch your own company. Yeah, so I started uh, a company called Lynchpin Labs uh, with a, with a business partner in Australia. The goal of the company it, it was interesting because we didn't know out of the gate what you know how it would be received uh, because the the ultimate goal of the company was to create a privatized intelligence company, and at the time that wasn't really a concept that anybody had uh, really any comfort with. Um, even large companies like Lockheed Martin um, weren't really super active in that area. So uh, we saw the opportunity to to carve out a new, uh, I guess, a new sub industry there. And um, uh, basically, in day one, we we started getting phone calls <laughs> from, from customers to uh, to start work. So uh, it, that's ultimately what what Lynchpin uh, became. We we always um, operated with uh, ethical behavior, and, and that's something I think in the privatized intelligence industry, it's not recognized. I think as much as it should be. But there is a concept of an ethical way to do it, contrasted with other companies. Uh, like there's a hacking team in, uh, in, in Italy, I believe, that um, was, was caught for selling you know, things to, uh, unlock, I guess, non-democratic com- uh, countries is a good way to put it. But yeah, so, you know, I think 11 years with Lynchpin. And what was the connection to Australia? A uh, former colleague of mine, actually, uh, at, uh, at CSE, he was a person that I, that I worked with pretty closely. I became great friends and um, just had very complementary skill sets and uh, a, a massive passion for, for, the, uh, for the technology and the mission. So you 11 years at Lynchpin, then do you immediately then create your current company, Field Effect? Yeah. So prior to uh, selling uh, Lynchpin, so that that I exited from that company, um, we sold it in 2018, and I ended up leaving uh, at the end of 2019. Uh, but prior to that, I uh, started another company called Field Effect Software. So this was at the same time. You, there was some overlap. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Field Effect Software. It's a um, it's a, a, a cybersecurity company that offers uh, MDR to uh, manage, detect, and respond services to small to medium enterprises as our as our target. Let's, let's define that the, the managed services. What specifically are you providing? You just mentioned software. You're providing some tools. What else are you doing? So what manage, detect, and respond is is uh, traditionally in the cybersecurity world, vendors would sell software. So I would sell you an antivirus uh, license or a network sensor. And you would be responsible for operating those and trying to make sense of what these tools actually produce. Uh, ultimately, that doesn't really work because it requires a significant IT department in your company, which you know small to medium enterprises definitely do not have, or it requires you know, a measure of uh, expertise, which is, you know, I, I don't know if there's 5,000 really good security professionals in the world, let alone enough to, to service all the small to medium companies out there. So what MDR is, uh, is we provide the software, the monitoring platform, and then we also provide a team of operators and analysts that work directly with the customer to to learn about the network, to understand the network, then use our capabilities to identify and block threats. So basically, we make it affordable to have intelligence grade cybersecurity uh, in a company of like five to 10 people, which is a really special thing. And do you have any particular niche that your clients and customers come from or you have across the board, different uh, types of organizations? Uh, across the board, really, we, we have, uh, and I, I think that's actually one of the, the special attributes of what we offer in that we can literally provide the solution to every small to medium company and even large enterprises. It works um, in that case as well uh, in the entire world. So we, we've got uh, customers in manufacturing and, and automotive uh, and healthcare, uh, accountants, lawyers, 
yeah, right, right across the board, there, there's a common need out there for this type of solution. And uh, we took the time to solve the hard problem first, we, we like to call it, because making this work for small to medium businesses at a, at a digestible price point is a very, very challenging thing. So we took quite a few years to actually build the system that works and is affordable. Uh, and um, yeah, at this point, it's uh, just trying to help the world. You say your focus is small to medium enterprises, but in truth, there's no company too small to avoid a, a, a cyber incident. There's no company that is too small for this type of attack because uh, ultimately an attacker is, is targeting. If there's something that means uh, something to you, an attacker will find a use for that. And at the very least, uh, in the context of ransomware attacks, they will attack, uh, encrypt your data, encrypt your resources, and then basically hold those for ransom. Uh, and, and ultimately, this can be a game, uh, I guess, a, a showstopper to a small uh, business or a large business. It doesn't really matter. Everybody is a target. And you've already alluded to it. And the reason I wanted to get you on the podcast is lawyers, they're, they're a good target. Um, they have a lot of information, very sensitive information. Yeah, law firms, I think, uh, for, the, for the longest time, I think, have kind of flown under the radar. Uh, I, I've been an entrepreneur now for 15 years, and just thinking about all the, the, the documents that I've signed, uh, you know, the, the business dealings and all those things, like, there's a, a huge uh, intelligence or uh, attacker value in that type of material. Like, when you, when you think about it, a law firm is, is basically the formalization of relationships between businesses and people. And the documents, the communications around uh, all of those resources, uh, it's, it's absolutely enormous. And if I'm an attacker, regardless of what my motivation is, so let's say I'm in a, an intelligence, uh, foreign intelligence agency, all that information is useful to me for understanding, you know, how in a, you know, a business dealings work between particular entities, who are the people involved? What are the complexities of those business dealings? How can I, as a foreign entity, exploit this information that the rest of the world doesn't know, but how, how can I potentially leverage that? So from a, from a foreign intelligence agency standpoint, that's huge. I, I think that is a threat that not enough people are talking about. On the ransomware side of things, uh, same type of deal. Like this information could be used for, uh, for bribery or uh, you know, embarrassing moments or, or that type of thing. So yeah, I, I think law firms really need to take this, this problem seriously. And it seems to be on the uptick. I mean, there's been a couple within the last couple of weeks, there's been pretty large global law firms that got hit. Yeah, there's uh, there's no <laughs> it's going to be really interesting to see what type of information actually comes out of that, whether, uh, you know, attackers are just ransomware in these organizations in order to, to pull a ransom because you know, no law firm will not pay a ransom. I cannot imagine a scenario where. Uh, a law firm's information gets encrypted that they will not immediately pay a ransom for right out of the gate because, you know, law firms bill hourly. So the, the, the downtime is, is instantly hitting their bottom line. So if it's ransomware, you know, that completely, I guess, makes logical sense. But it, it would be quite interesting to see if there's actual leaked information about business dealings uh, for, for particular uh, large companies. So I want to talk about how the bad actors get in. And I kind of want to do it as a word game. I'm going to talk about a couple concepts. I just want you to kind of fill in the dots. So phishing, that's probably the one most people are familiar with it. What is it? How does it, how does it work? So phishing largely is the, is the concept of exploiting social engineering to convince somebody to click on a link uh, or provide uh, credentials to a particular website. So this, this could happen in the form of somebody sending you an email the email looks completely legit. It might look like it's from an entity that you trust, 
so you then click on a link. That link leads to an exploit. Uh, and what that is, is a, is a way of taking over your host, your computer. And then once an attacker is on your computer, then they can go a bit deeper. In the other case where they try to get you to provide uh, credentials, perhaps you click on a link and that leads you into a login page uh, that looks like a, a portal that you're used to, but it's it's basically a simulated instance of that. They take your credentials and then they can use those credentials to log into the original portal on your behalf. Uh, so that's a, that's a different way. And that often leads to, you know, so a lot of people will reuse passwords. So if you use a password in site A, and then it might also be your email password, it could then lead potentially to uh, email compromise and whole worlds of uh, problems. So you mentioned a term there, social engineering. You said phishing is a, a part of social engineering. Define that. Uh, so social engineering would, uh, I, I guess it's the art of convincing somebody that you are somebody they trust. So once that trust relationship is established, then it's it's a lot easier to get people to do things. Another example would be a, a financial redirection that utilizes social engineering to convince that an attacker. Uh, so for example, let's say I, I get into your, your email and I scope your email out and I look at all of your invoices. I get to understand your payment schedule, who your customers are. And then right before you regularly send out invoices, I send an email to all of your customers from your email account saying, please send the money over to this other location. And then all of your customers, when they go to pay you, they send the money to a different location that is actually you know, my bad guy account that goes through one payment. And then I tear that down and I walk away with, uh, with all of your customers' uh, payments, essentially, which is- uh, In the difficult. term of art, the term of art, the cyber world, that's a business email compromise, correct? Yes. Yep. While we're on the topic of phishing- social engineering. What's the difference with spear phishing? I think spear phishing is a little bit more um, directed, I guess. We, we, we tend to use the term phishing in general, but uh, spear phishing is a bit more of a, a directed uh, approach uh, about uh, doing it. So rather than a mass email, it would be directly at you. So beyond phishing, another way to get in is the um, brute force attack. What's that? Uh, so a brute force attack is the idea where um, you're constantly trying to uh, guess passwords or, or, or break into something. A common brute force attack would be against a remote desktop from Microsoft. That's a way for users to, to remote into the, the, the Microsoft-based network. Yeah, exactly. And, and actually, in 2019, that was the most common way of delivering ransomware, where somebody on a network would you know, accidentally turn on remote desktop. And somehow that got exposed to the internet and then an attacker would see that and they would try to brute force that remote desktop instance. And once they guessed it, the password, uh, they could get in and you can control that machine. And from there, it's, it's basically game over. So yeah, it's a, it's a, I guess, a highlight of being aware of what your, your threat surface is on the network. So beyond phishing, beyond the brute force, how else can hackers get into a, an environment? Oh, that's a good question. The, the neat thing about hackers is they, they typically find a way. And being in this industry, I think, for well, over two decades now, I've, I've gotten to see the creativity of you know, the mindset of how hackers can actually get in. And it's, yeah, I, I think it really depends on the, on the attack surface, really. If you've got uh, a bad network configuration, uh, they may be able to hit a server resource. Uh, if somebody double clicks on something, uh, somebody, uh, sorry, in an email, like the, the exploit could actually be in a PDF that somebody emails to you. And when you double click on it to view it, it could exploit something on your computer. There's an endless way. There, there's a, uh, a hacking company or there is a hacking company in Israel called NSO Group. They were 
I don't say outed, but I think they were pretty much confirmed to have this ability. But uh, I believe in uh, May 2019, it was confirmed that they could actually hack into your phone. Oh, I read that. Which, which is crazy, right? Is that the one I think that reports I read the Mexican government was using it to spy on people? Yeah, yeah. And it, it's, it's an incredibly powerful attack. And, and when you think about that, you could be on the other side of the world, know somebody's WhatsApp credentials, and then just hack under the phone while they're sleeping at night. And, and there's very little you can do to, to stop that aside from don't install WhatsApp. But that's a tough pill to swallow. But then to close this loop, all the ways you've described there are people getting in. It sounds like more times than not, though, there's a human element. They clicked the bad link. Yes. They didn't make a secure password. They, you know, they, they fell susceptible to the phishing email. How much of it is really human, what we'll just call it human error, that provides the entree? Yeah, you, you, you've hit it um, perfectly. The, the, the human is often the problem um, the, the large majority of the time, be it clicking on a link be it misconfiguring a network. Uh, and, and that, I think, is, is something that that goes understated. A, a lot of uh, cybersecurity vendors will tout that they can stop anything. And it's like, no, you, you can't stop somebody making a bad decision unless you educate them. We've actually got a platform called CyberRange, which we offer courses to to teach people to be better at cybersecurity because we've recognized that problem. And it, it's, you know, if you have an organization of security-aware people, the odds of you being successfully exploited definitely are decreased it's just it's just fact human make humans make mistakes well you talked you talked about some instances there where they actually try to impersonate whoever it is that was compromised and send invoices try to get money but obviously one of the most common cyber incidents relates to ransomware and i know there's a, a few different flavors and i wanted to talk about those the first one, and I think I already mentioned to it, I think it's called crypto, where they, I think that's the, the term of art, it's where they basically they lock down your information and it's rendered inaccessible. Yeah. So in that case, um, you can imagine if you're an attacker on the other side of the world, if I gain access to your computer, uh, it's a lot faster for me to encrypt all of your data locally with a particular key because uh, that's a very fast thing to do. I have my key back in my, you know, in my in my safety net, but I can quickly just encrypt uh, the data on your computer. Um, so basically, a ransomware attack can be undertaken in just a matter of minutes. It's less about the encryption and it's more about the loss of intellectual property. So encrypting the data is one way, and then leaving the encrypted files on the host. Another approach is to pull copies of the data down and then delete all of the data on the host. Uh, or a combination of those two things. And the, the tough thing, or I guess the, the, the particular point where uh, you would want to block that would be on the actual modification of files. So regardless of whether they're deleting, overwriting, uh, encrypting, any of that stuff, it's, it's all kind of the same thing that as a defender, uh, we look for and stop. So the, the categories are really, you know, it's the same scenario where somebody has compromised your intellectual property they're not going to give you access to that intellectual property until you pay the ransom. And it's the kind of the same operational formula, I guess, is the way you put it. And they get in at a high level. Tell me if my explanation is wrong here. They get in, you know, you click a malicious link, they get into your computer, it keeps working, it keeps working. You could, you know, your computer's connected to your company's network and it keeps just searching and kind of like, like a, like a cancer working through the organization so until it gets to the root level if it can, right? Yeah, so it, it always starts with a single point of, of ingress typically. And 
depending on the sophistication of the attacker, they may just encrypt uh, or delete the contents of that initial host. But typically, these tool sets have the ability to, uh, you know, worm around a network. So look for other things that are there, uh, look for other exploitable hosts. If the initial or any of the computers it's operating on has a network share, so potentially, uh, you know, it's very common for a workstation to have access to a network server where you would store files in a central location. Very common for the for the ransomware to then encrypt all of those files and resources as well. It'll also typically go after a central point in the network, which is called a domain controller. That is a weak point where if they get on a domain controller with a particular level of credentials, the entire network is basically open to, to attack at that point. And it's, it's a pretty scary uh, proposition. So uh, the key thing with defending against ransomware is, is catching it early uh, at that very first uh, attempt that it makes to, uh, I guess, encrypt or delete uh, intellectual property. Define zero day. Zero day is essentially an unknown attack vector that is being exploited in the wild. So, you know, I, I was reading this morning that Chrome just, uh, or Google just patched a few zero days in Chrome. And what that means is there were exploits or flaws in the Chrome web browser that attackers have been exploiting for a long period of time. And if you don't patch right away, then, you know, it's kind of where the zero day term comes from. You have zero days <laughs> to potentially be uh, exploited by this. The The reality is, is that for, uh, for, for every, I guess, um, you know, zero day that's reported, there's always more zero days. So the, the comfort level <laughs> of being fully patched, I always recommend, uh, you know, that you, you stay fully patched, but the, the comfort level, uh, I think needs to be, you need to keep it in check because just because you're fully patched doesn't mean that there aren't still problems in software. Explain the concept of ransomware as a service. That's a, that's a pretty interesting, pretty interesting thing. <laughs> yeah. So, so this is, I, I always kind of have a giggle at the, the, the creativity or the, the economic thinking of some of these groups in the world. But the idea of ransomware as a service is uh, you have the technology provider and it, it's very similar to every other software as a service out there. You have uh, somebody building the technology and then exposing it in an economic model that allows people to, to rent it. It's not an unknown thing for public, I guess, malware platforms to exist and uh, ransomware as a service is essentially the next thing. So you can imagine the same way that you would, you know, use um, M3 or so Microsoft's uh, M365 or O365 uh, tool set for your email uh, or potentially, uh, you know, Word or, or, or Teams or anything like that online. That's as a service. You pay a regular fee to, to do that. And the same concept exists for ransomware, which... Uh, it's mind blowing. <laughs> so they're just using some. They're just paying to use someone else's software to infiltrate a, a business or a user and get money from them. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, it, it stems from the fact that building malware is actually pretty difficult. Uh, it, it's not, you know, uh, I'm going to use a term here that might cause people to roll their eyes, but uh, you know, high quality malware is, uh, you know, there's not a whole lot of groups in the world that can build these types of things. And high quality malware, which is ransomware as a type of malware. Uh, is something that you know it's it's tough to stop. It's 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 non-trivial to to detect and block it. So if somebody is really good at it, or a group is really good at it, and they decide to turn it into an economic model that uh, they can sell to other groups, then it's um, it, it you know from a from a ransomware economic standpoint, it makes complete sense. When we come back, Matthew explains why you've got to take threats from hackers very seriously because they're often very concerned about their reputations. He also offers some advice about where businesses can start to implement cybersecurity protections. 
we need to do more with less. That is the key takeaway nowadays from almost every survey of in-house counsel. But what if it didn't have to be that way? What if you actually could do more for less? By combining legal expertise and technology, Percipient enables legal teams to get more work done for less. Buried in contracts and sales is frustrated with turnaround time? We can help with that. Did you just get hit with a subpoena and reviewing 100,000 documents and files will tax your resources or cost you a small fortune in billable hours? We can help there too. Our team of legal professionals leverage tech and project management principles with the right amount of human oversight to deliver precise, efficient, and cost-effective legal solutions. Whether it's legal operations and contract management support, subpoena compliance, or document review, Percipient is your partner in really doing more for less. Percipient. Legal services powered by technology. We're going to get back to my talk with Matthew Holland in just a second. But before we do, I want to let you know that if you want to subscribe to Technically Legal, you can find us on all major podcast platforms. So I hope you look for us there. Also, if you want to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, or email me at cmain at percipient.co. That's C-M-A-I-N at percipient.co. Finally, for every episode of Technically Legal at tlpodcast.com, we have a dedicated episode page where you can learn more about our guests and links to more information about the stuff we talked about. All right, let's get back to my discussion with Matthew Holland about cybersecurity. Matt fills us in here as to why you need to take hackers' threats very seriously, because oftentimes, just like everybody else, they're concerned about their reputation. Have you run into instances, I've heard this happening, where the bad actor that put the ransomware in the, the company servers actually care about their reputations, that, that they, so they just want the money and they will unlock it. So going forward, when people are dealing with him, they know that they're going to, you know, <laughs> stick to their word that if you pay me, I'm going to unlock your data. Have you run into situations like that? Uh, our, our covalence customers, we, we don't, uh, you know, they don't typically get ransomware, but we've done uh, incident response jobs where we have come in after the fact to help companies out. Uh, and they, there's definitely been scenarios where we've seen uh, ransomware actors that they will absolutely do what they say. So if they say, you know, give me a million dollars or we're going to leak your entire set of intellectual property, it's this weird thing where, you know, you want to think to yourself, are they really going to do this? Because they, they basically give up their, their, their hold over me if they do this. So, you know, maybe I'll call their bluff. We've seen instances where uh, not, not anyone who we've worked with, but I'm aware of other thing, other instances, I guess, in the industry, so to speak, where a company has said, we're not going to pay the ransom. And the actor has turned around and just leaked their entire set of information. So there are definitely re- ransomware groups out there that uh, you don't want to call their bluff. You know, obviously being preventative and protecting your network and your assets are definitely the best way to go. But if you do get ransomware, it's this challenging debate as to whether you pay the ransom or not. Like it, it feels, it feels really icky. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, you have an interesting take about whether or not you should pay ransoms, right? Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, every time somebody pays ransom, a puppy dies. Uh, <laughs> how I feel in the inside. But, you know, it's very easy to, to have that position when it's not my company being right. ransomware, right? So, right? so I completely empathize that if you do get uh, ransomware that, yeah, all, all that really matters is you, you get back up and running, but it does end up supporting the machine that will then go and hit another customer. And ultimately, the only thing a company can do is is protect themselves like the the i cannot 
stress that enough that being proactive, getting a security solution in place ahead of time is by far the most economic, cheap, proactive way to deal with ransomware threats. Uh, so you, you cater to small and medium-sized business, but larger too. But let's say you're a small company that has everything in the cloud. So you use Office 365 or the Google suite. You use some, you know, you store your, all your files there. All the apps you use are, are SaaS. You know, you're using Zoom, whatever. You're just the normal day-to-day stuff. Are you safe from cyber attacks there if everything is in the cloud and you don't have a quote-unquote network per se? That's a really good question. I think the, the debate as to whether things are safe in the cloud is an ongoing one. We, we always have it at Field Effect because there's, there's different angles on that. First, it, you, know, you, you need to trust the vendor with which you're operating. And I would say Microsoft is a tra- trustworthy organization. Um, does Microsoft have the ability to secure your data? I would say yes. Uh, and in fact, they actually have one of the more mature authentication platforms. So when you log into M365, you have the option to turn on multi-factor authentication, which leads me to my my first point. If you are not using multi-factor authentication, then that is probably the under no circumstances are you uh, safe if you are if you are not using that. You can imagine in an organization of say 100 people, somebody's going to have a weak password. Somebody's going to make a mistake, have a weak password, and without multi-factor authentication to ensure that somebody logging in from the outside of the world is is not you, then yeah, it's it's definitely a risk. So if you do have everything in the cloud, I mean, that is, that's a good starting point. You, you don't have a network infrastructure that you, you manage that somebody could attack, but you still do have workstations, right? So if everybody's working from home right now, we've seen a lot of companies transition from actually having on-prem network set up to saying, okay, we're going to tear all this down and we're going to put it in the cloud. Uh, and now everybody's working at, at home with laptops. We all still have these laptops. Uh, so they are still attack points. If an attacker does get on your laptop, the, the same type of uh, situation would occur uh, in the case where you would have uh, an actual physical network in an office. So moving everything to the cloud, if it makes sense for your business, great, but you are definitely not uh, impervious to, to cyber attacks. So that's a good segue. You just mentioned it. Um, you know, you could you have these endpoints that aren't necessarily always connected to the network, but that's where hackers can get in. There's tools out there to monitor both these endpoints and the network at the network level too. So let's let's talk about software. What are the different flavors here? If you could put it into buckets, what what are the different flavors <laughs> and what are each one of these doing? We might need several shit buckets. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're we're getting into why the cybersecurity industry is absolutely horrible. So there, there's a concept of an antivirus. Uh, let's start with the basics. I think a lot of us are familiar with the antivirus concept right. or anti, anti-spyware. And, and these are you know, host-based solutions. From that, there's the concept of an endpoint detect and respond. This answer is actually going to make your, your ears bleed, uh, just, <laughs> just to give you an idea of how, how ridiculous it is. Then there's the endpoint detect and respond, which is like an antivirus, but it's supposed to be a little bit smarter, supposed to have potentially a team of operators and analysts helping out as well. And you're monitoring, when you say input, you're monitoring the employees' computers. Yes, yes. Not, not for, uh, not for uh, you know, not what the employees are typing or, you know, with microphones or anything like that. You're looking actively threat hunting on the host and looking for things. Uh, and then, you know, taking that a step further, there's a concept of UEVA, uh, which is a user behavior analysis. Uh, to look for deviations and in, in what they're doing. But is that really cyber? Is, or or is you're looking for deviations because they're not the ones using the computer? 
Yeah. So the way most things work nowadays is they try to establish a baseline of normal and look for other things that are not normal. Uh, a lot of companies will call this machine learning, uh, but this technique has been, you know, for, for the, as long as I've been in this industry, cybersecurity companies, antivirus companies have been doing this. So it's not a new concept. It's just a new sales technique, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's, I, I heard a funny joke recently that the difference between a, uh, a cybersecurity salesman and a, uh, a used car salesman is that a used car salesman will know when they're lying to you. Uh, that's, that's how ridiculous it is. Um, from, from that, there's the concept of network monitoring, which is basically watching all the network traffic. The effectiveness of that is kind of diminishing because there's more and more encrypted communications that traveling on a network. So that, that makes it more difficult to watch the traffic. And then there's the concept of a seam, which is, a basically, uh, the most expensive way to create noise. Uh, you can imagine all the, the complexity of computers and networks being put out to a log file, which doesn't really help anyway, anybody. Um, and, and unless you have an IT team to work with it, it's just ridiculous. I'm going to stop now because <laughs> uh, I mean, th this is why at FieldEffect we built a, an MDR solution because the complexity of cybersecurity for decades has been put on to customers. And the, the idea of MDR is to say, you know what, we'll deal with the complexity. We'll just tell you when you need to worry about something. Let's talk about, even before you get to that level, an official cybersecurity program at your business. Let's talk about some stuff just to everyday users can do or companies can require their employees to do just to minimize the threat. And I think the first one is just education about this stuff. You know, like this is what a phishing email is. This is what to look for. Like, yeah, absolutely. You're Going beyond education, what's the next thing that you would recommend? Probably more education. <laughs> after, after that, uh, I, we've we've done some uh, some some phishing uh, attempts for companies where we take a team of analysts uh, and we'll try to to see if we can spoof uh, or get somebody to give us their credentials. There hasn't been a single time where we have run that attack in one month and then turned around and run it again in the next month. And the, the awareness of just the average employee just is not constantly, you know, at the forefront of the brain that maybe I shouldn't click in this link. So an easy thing you can do to actually deal with that is um, in, in most modern email platforms, you can, uh, so M365 and, and G Suite, you can uh, identify foreign domains. So emails essentially that come from uh, a location or a sender other than within your organization. And it allows you just to put a banner at the top that says, uh, external email, do not click on any links or attachments. And that alone is a simple thing to do, but it's right in your face. And given that is one of the most common ways of compromise, it, it is a way to constantly just kind of remind the employee just with a little, yep, don't click on that right in their eyes, which is really quite nice. You already mentioned earlier, but let's just touch on it one more time and explain how, why people should use it. Multi-factor authentication. Yeah, so multi-factor authentication is the idea where you need more than a password to get in. Figuring out somebody's credentials, like password theft, that, that's something that's been happening for a very long time. Let's say I'm trying to hack into your account. Somehow I've guessed your password. I log into your M365 account. I, I've now got everything. But if you turn on multi-factor authentication that requires Microsoft servers to send you a text, when a new person tries to log in, you will get a text saying, you know, with, with an access code, basically saying, enter this code. And for you, that would 
be a bit odd because you know you, you've not done anything new. So why are you getting this code? And what that's actually doing is that's that multi-factor. Without that code, you cannot actually log in, and it protects uh, your email account. And and that is something. There's different forms of multi-factor authentication. There's uh, the text method. Sometimes uh, you can get an app installed, and that will deliver the code. But they're they're all pretty effective. Yeah, that was my next question. Absent someone actually then stealing your phone, how can they get in if you have MFA enabled? So there's a concept of, of SIM, SIM spoofing, which basically means somebody could simulate uh, your SIM card. That's not going to work for somebody on the other side of the world, which is, which is pretty convenient. So they, they'd have to have information about you ahead of time. Using the, uh, an app, uh, so for example, there's, a, there's an app that uh, M365, we're using Microsoft a lot uh, as an example. I feel like we should... <laughs> we, should, we should get a sponsorship thing or something. <laughs> um, they, uh, they, there's an app that you can install and then the code goes to there. And that's probably a better way than using a, like an SMS because that wouldn't be a, a subject to um, the, uh, the SIM spoofing approach. So you mentioned multi-factor. You mentioned stealing the password and that help prevent the person from getting in if, it doesn't, you know, if you have MFA enabled. It reminds me of something I heard you say that the television show Mr. Robot is fairly accurate. What about that show? I love the show. What, what about it's accurate? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> Thank you for asking that. Uh, the, the, both good and bad, I guess. The, so, so Hollywood tends to glamorize uh, breaking into networks with you know nine monitors in front of you with a bottle of wine with a bunch of music <laughs> playing in the background. And <laughs> that's, that's just not what it's like. It, it is literally you know, a dark room a couple of monitors uh, banging your head on the, on the, on the table, and then eventually getting a, you know, a prompt that indicates that you're in. And then, you know, it's, it's go from there. And, and that I think as a, as a feeling uh, they got right. Uh, some of the practical attacks, I think, I think my favorite was there was one season when somebody installed a Wi-Fi access point. So there was some yeah. crawling. Under I think it's the first desk. episode. I think it's the episode. He's at the coffee shop, right? Yeah. 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 So, I've done that with a couple of friends like a decade ago in New Zealand when we didn't want to pay for a hotel Wi-Fi. <laughs> so we, you know, we literally crawled under the desk in the lobby, popped a Wi-Fi network link in there, which uh, hit our hotel room so we can just get the free Wi-Fi on the, on the hotel. I don't know if I can go back to New Zealand now because they charge an arm and leg for Wi-Fi. Uh, but but that that type of thing, that that is practical practically how you would, you know, the type of attacks that you would do, it'd be something as similar as that or simple as that. And I think Mr. Robot really gets that right. You, you mentioned that him hijacking the Wi-Fi VPNs, right? That'll help you protect against that. Yes. So a VPN, it depends on uh, how it's been set up. But if there's a, a VPN portal that you have to be logged into that VPN once you're connected to Wi-Fi uh, and then, the, you know, the other boundary won't allow anything other than that VPN connection, then yeah, that's definitely a way to... Um, uh, I guess if it's your Wi-Fi network to make sure somebody doesn't, uh, I guess, access the devices or, or, or utilize it. But also from a traveling perspective, I mean, everywhere you go, uh, you know, once we can all travel again, everybody should be rocking a VPN uh, when they're on the road. Because there was an article released recently, like, I can't remember what it was, but uh, it actually really got it right that you cannot trust any, any Wi-Fi network out there at the airport, yeah. hotels. You don't know who owns these, who's managing them. A lot of the times they're unencrypted. And they're, they're just giant security holes. Password managers, do you recommend them? Yes, password managers are a very easy step to take or easy tool to utilize to get around the habit of using the same password all the time. So passwords generally are 
horrible, horrible to remember. So it, it's very convenient to use the same password or pattern of passwords, uh, which, which ultimately means that if somebody guesses your password or pattern, they can then figure out, okay, let, I'm going to try these credentials on all these different common platforms. And then eventually they're going to get lucky. What a password manager does is it will allow you to create very complex or it will generate complex passwords for you and store them on uh, your mobile device. Uh, and anytime you want to log into uh, a website, what you can do is log in using a single password. Everybody can remember a single hard password on their mobile device and then select the password for that particular website. It's tremendously helpful um, because it, it, it gets rid of the human tendency to take shortcuts and actually makes it easier to, uh, to, to use very complex passwords uh, on the internet. And I definitely, definitely recommend them. You also recommend rebooting computers in the morning. Is that, is that true? That's something that you can uh, easily do. There's different classes. What to do? What to do when you reboot it? Uh, so there's different classes of, of malware. Uh, I'm just going to use malware as a, a whole term. There's memory-only malware and persistent malware. Gaining persistence is a much more challenging thing. And what that means is no matter how many times you reboot your device, it finds a way to run again on reboot. But on mobile devices, that's a much more challenging thing to do. So if you start your day every morning and, and say, okay, I think I've been, uh, let's just assume that I've been, that I've been hacked, uh, then rebooting your phone should clear out the majority of potentially bad actors. It's an easy way to, uh, I guess, deal with uh, the type of threats that you might that you might have. So, a couple other things. I think you also recommend if you're going to have some Internet of Things or smart speakers, Alexa, what have you, run them on a separate separate network. Yeah, absolutely. So, smart speakers, home uh, or IoT, those, those types of things, uh, they're they're becoming more and more prevalent. And the reality is. The vendors that build these devices are much more interested in, you know, getting to market first. And that that's something that is is constantly plaguing basically all the all development of new technology and is that going to market is much more important than building something that's secure. Security is always <laughs> the last thing that anybody ever really cares about in, in building these these tools. So uh, or the, these devices. So what you want to do is put those on a separate network, assume that they are full of holes and problems put them on a separate Wi-Fi network, then your, com- your computers, your laptops, your, uh, your phones, um, just, which is just a precautionary measure. And which, you know, do I think that any of those devices uh, are secure? I, there's no way. There's <laughs> color me old man skeptic, but <laughs> I just don't see it. Okay, so let's, let's talk about the businesses. They realize the threat is real. They want to do something about it. And I guess my question's twofold. What do you do? If you don't have, or maybe can't afford, or it's just not on your roadmap right now, I have a chief security officer, or a security officer in general, you know, what do you recommend? What's the first step there? And then secondly, I assume this is part of it, software. What do you recommend? Where, where do you start there? Or is it as simple as, hey, hire a company like yours to do it for them? Like, wh- where do you start? What's the first step you recommend somebody take is if they're going to get serious about protecting and securing their, their network and environment? Yeah. So the first step is understanding what your budget actually is, because that's that's a very basic principle that will wipe a whole bunch of options off the table. If, if your annual security budget is $5,000, then that's your starting point. Like that, that just has to be your starting point. The odds of being able to go out and get a virtual CISO uh, are, are lower. Being able to afford a high rated Gartner security vendor is just 
it's just infeasible, right? So understand what your security budget is. Don't think that you can build an IT team out of that budget. So first step, sort the budget out. Second step, what can you do with that budget? So if you've got the budget to hire a security team, that's fine. Uh, but if you don't... You're talking internal, the budget to hire an internal security team. Yes, yeah. Which I would never actually recommend at this point in time, um, just because the, the the types of attacks, it, it is just way too complex out there. And unless you've got the, the the budget to actually bring in a team of 10 people from an intelligence agency, I'd wipe that off the table right off the bat because you're just, you're kidding yourself. Because you can't stay ahead of them. You can't stay ahead of them. Yeah, it's just infeasible. Uh, the, the rate at which cybersecurity industry evolves, you, you'd need a, a company of specialists constantly uh, staying ahead of the curve, educating themselves and making sure that they're they're on top of the threats that are realistically pose a threat to your company. But I assume you recommend a point person or someone to own it within the organization that, that goes out and hires a team like yours or makes sure that all these security measures are in place. Yeah, you definitely need somebody as a point person. Uh, and, and I think this is actually why our, uh, why covalence, uh, our field effects covalence MDR is such an attractive solution because we've built the entire uh, solution around the lowest common denominator. And, and so we, we built a system that we expect to inter- interface with an office manager that knows nothing about cybersecurity. So that is our baseline person that we expect to deal with. And we've built a communications platform around that. And that uh, I, I think resonates quite a bit. Finding a vendor out there is is, is really quite tough. It's it's uh, There's organizations like Gartner that try to classify the different type of cyber solutions out there, but really they just kind of create silos it's a you know noble noble task. It's just you have to have a holistic solution, and putting things into silos is just not going to do the trick. So, so you say you really should instead of hiring a team, hire a company like yours because you can stay ahead. The software obviously goes with hiring you. You have your suite of tools that you you use to help monitor. Should people just go and buy a buy a license for a piece of software and and put it a in use in their organization? Or is that a fool's errand and they should just hire experts to take care of that as part of the service? So the risk you run with buying just the software is you, is you need experts to run it. So um, there, there are, I'm not going to name our competitors, but there are com- competing solutions out there that uh, have very you know similar technical specs at a software level. You can acquire those and you can buy them and you still have to operate those. So unless you have a security team continuously looking at the output of these tools, then they're not really doing a lot for you. And it creates the concept, uh, uh, which is called alert fatigue. You can imagine uh, you know, somebody calling you every two uh, minutes, yeah. right? You're, you're going to stop answering the phone at some point because, because it becomes annoying. And alert fatigue in the cybersecurity context is exactly, exactly that. Imagine trying to digest uh, a thousand logs uh, every 10 seconds where the software is saying, hey, this is just stuff that's happening. And you need to pick a needle out of the haystack as these are constantly coming out. By the way, your job as, uh, you know, let's say the, the IT monitor of this solution, if you miss something, like who's going to get fired, right? It, it's just, it is an untenable approach to wrangling complexity. That's why an MDR approach, especially for a small to medium business, makes so much sense because that is, you know, behind the software, there is a team of people who have been doing this for decades. They've worked at intelligence agencies. They, they know their stuff. They know what they're looking for. They know how to digest complexity and simplify it in a way that gives you peace of mind that if you ever get a phone call from them, you know it's serious, but you're not getting phone calls all the time because most of the time everything's, everything's okay. 
And that, that's really the difference, whether you want to own the cybersecurity problem internally or hire a company of experts to do it. There's nothing wrong with buying just the software, but you need to be, this goes back to my original point that budget is so important that if you do not have the budget to hire and build an internal security team to use it, that software is doing you no good. Matthew, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. If people want to get a hold of you or learn more about your company, how do they find you? Uh, Twitter's probably the easiest way, uh, at not not a spy. It's supposed to be ironic. <laughs> and it's, uh, is it, it's fieldeffect.com, right? Yeah, the, the, the company name is Field Effect, uh, www.fieldeffect.com. Well, that's it for today's episode. As always, we appreciate you listening. If you want to subscribe, you can find us on most major podcast platforms like Apple, Google, Spotify, etc., etc., when you're there, if you like us enough, we hope you'll give us a favorable review. If you want to find me, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at cmain at percipient.co. And that's C-M-A-I-N at percipient.co. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, this has been Technically Legal.